0: Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO.
1: This is ED ECMO. ED ECMO. It is October 2022, and I am with Joe Tona today. Joe, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks, Zach. Joe, you're a machine. I've been following you on Strava. What did you do? 40 something miles biking two days ago?
0: Oh yeah. You, you are following. Yeah. We had a, we had a nice race through, uh, Utah and Nevada, uh, over grapple. It was awesome.
1: That is awesome. You, we, so Joe and I ran actually out in Boston together a couple of weeks ago at Elso, uh, morning run, which was fantastic. But, but, uh, but Joe, man, you do some, you do some gnarly stuff. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Well, you know, exercise is fun. So, Joe, you're also a machine in the literature, in the research phase. Your name is on a ton of different papers. I want to talk to you about a couple of them today. Uh, We're going to eventually get into doing validation and derivation scores for in-hospital cardiac arrest, Joe's great uh, recent paper. But before we get to that, I want to mention a little bit about hypothermia. Joe, you published a paper about ECPR and the use of hypothermia. Tell me your opinions and what that paper showed.
0: Thanks, Zach. So, yeah, this is the paper by Takahiro Nakashima published in Resuscitation uh, earlier this year um, called The Association of Intentional Cooling Achieved Temperature and Hypothermia Duration with In-Hospital Mortality in Patients Treated with Extracorporeal Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation. So, this was a paper where we did an observational analysis of the ELSO registry data. And, you know, the question is, is, is you know does hypothermia work to help the brain and and this is such a contentious strangely contentious topic nowadays among clinicians And uh, it's been around the idea of hypothermia for brain protection in patients who have a brain insult, namely a cardiac arrest where they don't get any blood to their brain uh, for a period of time, you know, was first brought up and studied decades ago in the Bernard trial and has been subsequently studied really elegantly by uh, Nielsen, uh, Nicholas Nielsen and his group in the TTM trials. In the, in the Princess Trials, there's been a number of subsequent studies looking at this, uh, and as ECPR patients have cardiac arrest, this is something that is germane to this population because you can, you want to know if hypothermia works, and it starts to get a little more complex with ECPR patients for a couple reasons. One is that these patients can achieve um, temperature control uh, and a, a target temperature much more quickly. Than without ECMO, because the blood is coming out of the body, so it cools off naturally and you can actually cool it using a or heat it using a heater cooler. And so you can get the body to a, a different temperature very, very quickly. And we know this about ECMO because we actually, you know, it's it's one of the reasons to use ECMO for, for hypothermic patients to warm them up. And so we wanted to ask this question using the ELSO dataset because there was not a lot of data looking at the use of hypothermia among an ECPR population. It's hard enough to do ECPR trials, let alone to do hypothermia ECPR trials. And what we showed, uh, what Dr. Nakashima and uh, under the leadership of of Bob Newmar showed was that um, they looked at whether or not the person had intentional cooling or not intentional cooling and that had no difference but in contrast to that if you look at the patients who had intentional cooling and were cold between 34 and 36 degrees that they had a lower uh, significantly uh, lower adjusted hazard ratio for in-hospital mortality compared with patients who were intentionally cooled but were at or above 36 degrees and further if the patient stayed below 36 degrees for 12 to 48 hours, they had a lower hazard ratio for mortality compared to those who were below 36 for only less than 12 hours. So there did seem to be an observational single signal in that analysis for a mortality benefit and a really big one, actually, <laughs> you know, a hazard ratio of uh, 0.73 um, and 0.69 respectively, which is, a, is really quite a large difference. Uh, For intentional cooling at those lower temperatures. So that was really exciting. And the reason why this is important is because we know that when you take patients to deep levels of hypothermia, that it can also cause coagulation problems. And so you can actually create problems on ECMO. Among these patients who are already exposed to the extracorporeal circuit and are at risk of bleeding, you can make them bleed more. Um, and we still didn't even really know if the hypothermia helped, uh, and so that's part of why we undertook this analysis. And it was really nice to see this signal.
1: So retrospective using Elso database, some stuff that suggests yes, and then the but the signal that you did see was pretty strong. I kind of just did a little. Brief look in the literature as well for other papers that I could find. There's a couple other things out there specifically in ECPR. I am kind of, and I Joe, I know where where you sit with this, and both of us are have this intrinsic belief that the the colder temperature that this 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 really does work. I'm trying to be as unbiased as I possibly can. I have to say that this is still muddy waters. Would you agree with that? It's absolutely muddy waters. And so this question in 2022, for your patients, ECPR, full downtime, you know, one hour chest compressions, got put on pump, what temperature are you cooling them to?
0: 33.
1: 33. Okay. Yeah. And I I think I I still believe in that. I do think that there is a difference, right? This, we're talking about the TTM trials. We're talking about patients who had an average downtime of 25 minutes. Our downtimes are a lot longer than that. Um, we like you said, we also have these patients that have this ability to have a much more quickly um, regulated temperature, but also that we can be more accurate in the temperature that we we dial in on these patients. So these probably do represent different patient populations. I think the real question is how different are the patient populations?
0: You're exactly correct. I, I completely agree with that. this The, the issue is, is, you know, how long were these patients? without perfusion to their brain. Um, prior to that, how hypoxic were they? you know was this you know this gets into the different ideologies of arrest and and the correlation with outcomes for ECPR was it an, an arrhythmic arrest? Was it a hypo hypoxic arrest or a hypercarbic arrest? Totally different populations, right? And then how long were they hypo uh, were they un, not perfused for? Um, and so what was the magnitude of their brain injury? And that's the piece that we don't understand is how much brain injury is required to potentially see a difference in effect from hypothermia. And then what we also don't understand is, you know, how, how quickly do we do it? Right. So you all, in, you know, if, if you just think uh, without getting too far off topic, if you just think about the spectrum of hypothermia on the brain, right. So if you undergo elective cardiopulmonary bypass and they have to do a total arch on you, you're going to get, um, preemptive hypothermic cooling, right? They're going to cool your brain down and then they're going to clamp your cerebral vessels and you're not going to get any blood to your brain for a long time. And we do that because we know that if you wake somebody up from that, that they do okay, right? If the brain is already cold, when it doesn't get blood flow, it does really well. Likewise, if you happen to be an unlucky four-year-old who falls in an ice lake and you have immediate hypothermia followed by immediate uh, arrest, those patients sometimes do really well. And these kids come out and they're normal and, you know, they've been down for like an hour. That's amazing, right? That couldn't happen in the tropics. And so then the question is, as well, what about after applying hypothermia after we know from animal data with the various peaks of injury, um, after, uh, any sort of cardiac arrest, we know that the brain can swell at different time points after that cardiac arrest. And so the question is, is, um, is there a benefit to applying hypothermia after cardiac arrest? And as you mentioned, I think there is. I think the data from animals and in, in certain human trials shows that, but that benefit is really predicated on early, early application of hypothermia. If you delay that hypothermia, there is not a benefit. And I'll leave it at there. There's we've talked about this on uh, on episode 307 of of uh, Mcred and 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 others have talked about this. It's not a it's not a secret. Uh, we're we're just trying to get studies that will will show that. And and that's not to disparage Dr. Nielsen and, and their work. Those studies are incredibly well done, and and are and are true. They they showed a true signal. <laughs> the question is is did they test the right intervention? In my mind.
1: All right. Awesome. Uh, let's move on. The next yep. paper here, one of your myriad of different papers, but this one is, this one's fantastic. So, so much of ED ECMO, we talk about out of hospital cardiac arrest. We talk about how do we decide what the optimal inclusion exclusion criteria is. Uh, and we spent a lot of time on that. Today, we're going to switch a little bit. We're going to switch to in-hospital cardiac arrest, and we're going to try and make some decisions on which patients we include. Now you did a wonderful study that was both derivation and validation study all in one using the AHA data set and the ELSA data set. And what'd you find?
0: Yeah. So this is the study that was published in Jack, uh, interventional cardiology. And, uh, it was published in, um, 2022, just this, this year looking at, it's called the rescue in hospital cardiac arrest study. And, um, What we showed uh, in that uh, analysis, we took about a thousand patients from the American Heart Association dataset who had had in-hospital cardiac arrest, and then they were treated with eCPR, Um, and we looked at their probability of hospital survival, and we looked to see if factors in the dataset that were collected were then statistically associated with survival. Um, in order, once we got the results, we then wanted to see if these results would, would apply to another cohort. And this is really important just from a methodologic standpoint is that if, if you have a data set, especially if it's a very large data set, you can show with incredible precision an outcome using the variables in that data set because you train on that data. But you may and that's just reflective of the statistical uh, your st- statistical tests if you then want to show that that is actual truth it needs to be able to apply to another data set that has different patients in it and and that's why you have to really do external validation for a score to be any good and if a paper doesn't have external validation i'd really question how applicable it is outside of that population um, so then we we took ELSO data and we mapped the variables between the data sets so that we could use the different patients from the ELSO data set who we ensured were not in the American Heart Association data set. And we then tested it and it it mapped uh, it validated well. So um, it, it, the, the effect of it was that um, we were able to show that. Um, you know the the area under the curve was about 0.72 and it validated at 0.68 so pretty close Um, and so we were pretty happy about that and the reason why we did this analysis was we wanted to see if the factors within the data set could predict outcomes so that they could help inform clinicians at the time of, of cannulation for eCPR. And what we found was that there were uh, six variables that were associated with outcome. Five of them were not um, dynamic variables according to the resuscitation. So they were patient characteristics that were not uh, that, that were not modified during the resuscitation. In contrast, one of them was. Um, and so the, the initial things that were associated with it were, you know, whether or not the patient was a surgical patient or a medical patient. So this, this reflected potentially the ideology of the arrest also probably reflected the age of the patient and the comorbidities, whether or not they had renal insufficiency, what time of day it was. So this was really interesting, actually. So patients who had their cardiac arrest during the day had a much, much better outcome than patients who had their cardiac arrest at night with ECPR. Um, also their their rhythm uh, and how old they were uh, and so these are things that you would expect and then the modifiable potentially modifiable intervention was the duration of the arrest so if you were going to get ecpr doing it very very quickly was strongly associated with better survival uh, than than delay in that process so those were the the primary findings that that we had and I think there's we can really we can dig into that a little bit more if, if you want, but it, um, it, you know, it suggests that you can actually know how good patients are going to do when you can lead them for eCPR. Um, and uh, importantly, from that score, the rescue in hospital cardiac arrest score, you do not need any lab values, right? So you can figure all this out without getting vascular access.
1: So that's so key. And when we look back, you know, like tip 65, which is kind of we're coming up and we'll probably talk about that in a couple of months as well as some more data comes out. But um, the idea that like, can you stratify these patients quickly to decide yes or no to cannulation? And so what's genius about what you just said is that you can do everything in the rescue IHCA test without having to do any further interventions. Just by simply knowing some simple facts, you can decide, okay, their mortality, if these numbers plug in, is such and such. Exactly. And so, so yeah, let's get into the weeds a little bit. So the renal insufficiency, I mean, so you're taking a huge data set, you're finding like some variables that make sense on the initial one, and then you're validating them. So this plugged out in two very large data sets that, Renal insufficiency was one of the factors that we wanted to, like, drill down on as far as inclusion criteria for in hospital cardiac arrest. Yes, so um,
0: renal insufficiency—if you had it, your odds of a poor outcome were much higher. And I, I'm not sure that I can do anything other than speculate as a clinician as to you know why that is. It, it has many implications as far as you know the kidneys process a lot of drugs. The the vascular system in patients who have renal insufficiency is probably different, both because of the renal insufficiency and leading to the renal insufficiency. So there's many reasons why patients with renal insufficiency do worse. Uh, and, and our data suggested that that is indeed true. They're going to do worse.
1: And so like when we look at this, we all are wanting these pearls, these like these crystal balls that allow us to see what's the chance of this patient surviving. And maybe this is one of them. Maybe this is one of those things that is a surrogate for so many other problems, uh, wow. and that we can wrap it all up into just one little tight thing and say, okay, it it is what it is. You know, th- when you have renal insufficiency, this is this is your uh, prognostic problem uh, probability of having a, a poor outcome, and that was a pretty significant outcome, right? I mean, like the, the you have you stratify each of these by numbers, and I believe the renal insufficiency one was quite strong. Yeah, Eight, eight points. It was the
0: second or third most predictive, uh, factor. Yeah. The, um, the, the odds ratio associated with it, um, per renal insufficiency, I can pull it up here and see it was, uh, yeah, basically two. So, so really quite strong. The, the okay, thing so- about renal insufficiency is, you know, you've got, um, if you're trying to decide who to do ECPR on, you know, our program at Utah, we just say, if it's obvious that you have an organ system that's already out before this process started, we're not doing it on you. And that that is going to cut down our population in whom we could potentially help, but it's also going to improve the the number of survivors within the population that we do perform eCPR on. So, if they have a dialysis catheter or fistula, we're not doing it.
1: That's, I mean it's you got to stratify along something and and what's nice about these studies and your study in particular is that it's very easy way to stratify now the overnight thing i did find that quite interesting and and the question is what do you do with that does that make (laughs) you say okay we suck overnight and we shouldn't uh we should try and improve our processes and, and make it so that the night is the same as the day or does it just just like renal insufficiency say that this is a a surrogate for so many different global issues that you're not going to be able to solve under one thing. So just just use it as one of your criteria.
0: It depends. (laughs) So I think the first thing is to ask yourself, is it different at night at your institution than somewhere else? Now, most institutions don't have everybody in-house at night, but are the people who are cannulating in-house at night? If they are, then maybe your process is not that different for cannulating what about the therapies after cannulation? Are they going to the cath lab? Are the people in-house during the day who are going to take them to the cath lab? Are they in-house at night? Is that process going to get delayed at all? What about the ability? What about the nurses Are the nurses? Is the staffing ratio measurably different during the day or during the night? All those are things I think you should ask yourself. If they're no different, then you may not have a difference with day and night. Um, if they aren't different, then then that may be one of those systemic factors that that influences the probability of outcome, and that's what we thought too is that is that is as likely reflective of systemic factors between day and night. There is also literature that suggests that there's a psychomotor delay at night because we are circadian beings who are used to being awake during the day and asleep at night, and so we are our psychomotor skills are not as good at night, and so it may just be that it may be a procedural thing.
1: Um, oh, wow, that's an interesting one. I'd love to look at our data on that. Because yeah. like in the ER, right, you would theoretically have the same resources. I mean, different mm-hmm. than the in- patients. I mean, not, yeah. not the same, but at least reasonably the same docs taking care of patients at different time of day. And are you actually much worse cannulating overnight than you are during the day? That'd be a fascinating study.
0: I mean, I'm, I'm with you, Zach. I mean, I'm an ER doc, right? So, you know, I drink a ton of coffee and when I'm awake at night, I'm pretty awake, right? Like I'm ready to go. And the benefit of night is there's not that many people there, right? So it's just me, a nurse, a resident, you know, it's, it's pretty efficient. And that is a lot easier than during the day when there's 30 people in the room who all want to be involved. Um, yeah, it'd be a great study.
1: Okay. So I'm going to take that point to say if my hospital has significant problems with staffing at night, or just whatever the what their your arrangement is at your hospital, if it's significantly different at night, then that should be a major factor. If not, then maybe I I use that criteria less. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think if you're staffed measurably different at night, you may want to consider not doing it at night. If you are staffed the same, then you know Go ahead and do it, and and then look at your outcomes. See how see how they are, you know. And if if your goal is to work with the existing system and provide the best care that you can for the patients that you have, maybe let the system determine when you do ECPR. If you are trying to change the system to apply this therapy that you really think is going to benefit patients, then maybe use that as a reason to say, hey you know, we can't provide the same care for this important patient at night that we can during the day. That's a reason to motivate your hospital to change their staffing. Love it.
1: Um, the other ones, the rhythm and the age and the duration of arrest, those, those are, those make sense.
0: Yeah, they do. Younger people do better, you know, that for whatever reason, uh, rhythm is, is so predictive because, I think it, it one, implies what you have to do to fix the problem. You know, If they have VF, they probably have a big MI and you can just cath them, right? They have PEA, they might have an MI, they might have a PE, they might be hypoxic. So, you don't really know. And if they don't have VF, it's possible that they've, as I said, been hypercarbic or hypoxic for a while and somebody has just now figured this out. So, the brain is already pissed off at the moment that their heart stops beating. That patient the cat's out of the bag, right? They've had a longer period, essentially a longer period of poor perfusion to their brain than you recognize just by their heart stopping.
1: Well, this is a fantastic paper. And I think, I think it really does offer benefit for us in the moment, trying to figure out yes or no to cannulation. Thanks. Your program out there at Utah has been so fantastic and has led the way in so many things. What's next on your horizon?
0: Clinical trials there there are so many questions that just need randomized data to answer um, so many questions around the care of these patients and so many potential uses for extracorporeal support that i hope to play a small part in in answering some of those questions in a really methodologically rigorous way going forward
1: uh joe well we are, we are all, we are so thankful for all the work that you do and all the data that you provide and and can't wait to see what's next
0: Thanks so much, Zach. It's an it's an honor to speak with you. You're a force of nature.